All right, you can find your ways to Habakkuk chapter 3. If you're not familiar, he's one of those minor prophets, short books, not uh, small in significance. Right after your favorite, Nahum. All right. Actually, I like Nahum. So, all right. Today we're going to uh, be looking at the first 15 verses of uh, this last chapter. Uh, I kind of broke it up. It's a little bit arbitrary in some sense of the word, um, but not completely arbitrary. So um, let's, let's read. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, son of Shigaonath. Sorry, according to, son of, I don't know where I got son of, according to Shigaonath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that this was written for our instruction, that we might endure and through the encouragement of the scriptures have hope. As the God of endurance and encouragement, grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through the scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust in him as he is presented to us in the scriptures. In Christ's name. Amen. 
It's not easy being a Christian in large, large parts of the world. Just a few scenarios for you. Nigeria, where for the last couple of months, uh, Muslims have been burning churches, burning homes of Christians, similar to what we see in Ethiopia, uh, seeking to uh, force Christians to convert to Islam. Not only have homes been burned and churches, but also people have been killed. Shift to China, which seems to uh, never leave the pages of my world magazines that arrive. Uh, it's always something new about what's going on with, in terms of the persecution in China. And it's not just Christians who are being persecuted. Muslims are being persecuted. People who want democracy are being persecuted. North Korea, very similar, where Christians are placed in these labor camps and given almost nothing to eat because they don't want to bow down to the almighty authority of their government and the one who thinks he's a god that rules over them. Even here in the U.S., uh, there are rumblings of things that occur. Equal rights are good, uh, but sometimes they are forced upon people at the expense of religious liberty. That's a difficult thing to sort out. And it's, and it's getting very difficult for our nation to sort that out as different activist groups press issues. And so as we look around the world, we kind of see this idea of, of governments and sometimes other faiths um, forcing issues of uh, pressing down God's people because they will not pay allegiance to the right God whether that be the god of another religion or the state, as we see in China and Korea. How are we, who are justified by faith, to live by faith, to grow in our faith, when we are pressed down by enemies? Uh, that's something that Habakkuk himself was incredibly familiar with. We see sort of the hinge upon which all of this book of Habakkuk stands is that statement, the just shall live by faith, and yet Habakkuk sees that the Babylonians are coming. And he struggles. Habakkuk two times already has sort of complained to God. Well, not sort of, he really did complain to God. First he complained about the wickedness that he saw in his own nation, Judah, and then he complained about God's solution for that wickedness, which was the Babylonians. And it was on the, after the second complaint that God gave the vision that we looked at last week, here we see his response to God's vision. Habakkuk's complaining has shifted. It's now turned to prayer. But I want us to pause for a second. This book of Habakkuk is not just to instruct us about who God is, not just to instruct us about what God does, but it also intends to instruct us as how we respond to all of that. And complaining has a place when it's done like Habakkuk did it. Complaining has a place. It's struggling through the issues, the realities of life in the presence of God, and that is a good thing. And so now Habakkuk has, has shifted from that complaining that to now prayer. 
This last chapter, all of it, is summarized with this statement here, introduced by the statement that this is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And so this other phrase to uh, Shigaonioth, the word I cannot pronounce, and don't, don't tell me I mispronounced it. I know I did. Mostly a, uh, most likely a musical term. This was not just a prayer, but like the Psalms, it was a prayer that was intended to be sung. And as a result of that, it is a prayer intended to be sung in order to form the spiritual life of the people of Israel. And therefore, has application to us. It is instructive to us as to how our spiritual life is intended to be formed. How we are to respond to the difficulties that we see in our time and in our day. He sang it. Singing and praying are important elements of how our faith is built in difficult times. He begins, it starts off with some uh, first-person stuff. Okay, a couple verses of that. He says, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now, it's important to keep in mind that the beginning and at the end of this, this uh, prayer, this psalm, he's specifically referring to the Lord, Yahweh. Now, in the midst of this, he's going to use some other names for God. But So we, we remember the bookends that indicate that everything he says about God, he's saying about the God of Israel. Yahweh, okay? Important to keep in mind. But he hears this report, he hears about God's work, and he is afraid. Now, of course, we remember that there can be a good fear, there can be a bad fear, there's slavish fear, there's the fear of sons that takes place, there's um, the positive awe and reverence before God, but there's also fear and trembling like, I'm really scared, you know? And it's hard to rightly understand exactly what it is in here. It's the context that matters, not the word. Because that word is used for both things. Both kinds of fear. The fear is connected not to the Lord, but the fear is connected to the report and his work. And so I'm not sure. I don't think this is simply fear and reverence of God. This is not good fear, but there's also an element of the fact that he is scared. He's quaking in his boots. He's trembling. This is not a pure fear, but he's honest with God about what he is experiencing because he can do that because God already knows. It's not like you can keep any secrets from Jesus. Okay? So, He's honest about the fact that all of this scares the daylights out of him. And that's okay, as far as it goes. God's message about his work and judgment fill him with fear and trembling. Now, let's keep in mind here. It was not easy for him to receive what God had just said. This doesn't mean, uh, rather, faith does not take away all fear. People who have faith in God can still struggle with fear. 
When circumstances seem big and out of control, it is normal for them to experience some measure of fear. Faith does not give you a get-out-of-fear-free card. Okay? Don't think that because circumstances frighten you a little bit doesn't mean that you're lost, that you have been uh, rejected by God. Okay? Faith does not make it easy to receive everything that God says. There are things that I read in the Scriptures, and while I believe them to be true, don't always make me happy. Because there are hard things that are said in the Scriptures. He seems to be, Habakkuk seems to be struggling with how severe God's response to his initial complaints were. He asks, in the midst of the years, revive it, referring to God's work. In the midst of the years, make it known and make the report, most likely, or the work known. In other words, he wants God to revive his work on behalf of his people. Not to snuff them out, not to lay them aside, not to abandon or forget them, but to get back to protecting and nurturing his people. The church, the assembly, as it is used in the Old Testament, the people of God, whichever phrase you want to use to refer to them, needs God's constant care and nurture in order to thrive and grow, and so does each individual person that makes up the assembly. They need God's constant care and nurture to thrive and grow. And so now... Habakkuk makes the big ask, the big request. Okay? This is not a, something that he says to us, what we're supposed to do. This is something he's asking of God that he would do. So let's keep that in mind uh, because of the context here. His request is that God would, in wrath, remember mercy. Uh, that even though God is going to express His wrath at the wickedness, first of Judah and then of Babylon, that God would still remember mercy precisely because God's people are there. God's people were still in Judah when Babylon came, and then they took a bunch of those people to Babylon. And so when Babylon experiences the wrath of God and judgment of God, He wants there to still be mercy precisely because some of God's people are there. He doesn't want the Babylonians obliterated, but he wants them brought to justice. He makes this request to God in light of God's covenant promises. And we see something similar in Lamentations 3, which we looked at a, probably what, a few months ago now. The steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so, like Jeremiah, Habakkuk understands that God is merciful, and he's sort of banking on this, and he's reminding God to be merciful, even though he is expressing his wrath at the sin of people. We see Moses having a similar sort of idea in Numbers 14. Please, he says, pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven these people from Egypt until now. He reminds the Lord of how patient he has been with Israel because 
At almost every conceivable moment, they've goofed, they've sinned, they've gone the wrong way, and God has continued to forgive them for their many sins. And so we also are always in need of forgiveness because we, like them, sin every day in thought, word, and deed. And we must remember, in wrath, remember mercy. Don't destroy completely. He had this hope precisely because of what he saw in the history of Israel. This is fulfilled in its fullest measure, the greatest way in the fact that Christ bore God's wrath in order to bestow God's mercy upon all who believe. And so we see from Jesus that God's justice and God's mercy are not competing with one another. It's not as if God is having to decide, shall I be just or shall I be merciful in this event? But we see that both of them are at work, even in the same event, although some people get justice, others get mercy. Jesus, bearing God's wrath in order to bestow God's mercy on all who believe. And so prayer and song are intended to point our faith to the one who in wrath remembered mercy. That's the first part of how our faith is built in the midst of these struggles and trials. That leads me to a second kind of a second question. Who is the God who in wrath can remember mercy? Who is this God? Okay. Here's where Habakkuk shifts from his requests, to now he talks almost completely uh, in the third person. In other words, he goes from expressing his own feelings and making his petitions to now describing the God in whom he trusts. The next number of verses can be very confusing in some ways, precisely because uh, Habakkuk is using lots of poetry and lots of symbolic language. But what I want us to understand is that behind all of that, he is connecting historical events. He's just describing them like so often we find in the Psalms in this poetic language. And so he's not just stating facts, but he's stating them in a compelling sort of way. He's stating them in a way that's probably far more interesting than I am. Okay, when we think about what's going on here. But I want us to grasp that idea or that truth uh, that this is rooted in history. Okay, Second Peter chapter one, Peter tells them, "For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And so even though Habakkuk is using this colorful language, he's not talking about cleverly devised myths like the nations around them. Okay? He's just using this very colorful language to describe what God actually did do. And we'll talk a little bit about that. 
these past deliverances from the history of Israel that, that Habakkuk is going to talk about are intended to produce trust in the future deliverances. You see, holy history is intended to, uh, to build faith. And that's what he's doing. We see that, uh, in part, there is a journey that takes place. He mentions some places that are a little bit unfamiliar to us. Uh, Temen and Mount Perrin, and you have a map there, and there's the one that uh, is uh, briefly going to be you know, kind of up on the screen when the, the projector obeys that, Matt's wish and command. Just so you get a, a bit of a layout, an understanding of what we're talking about geographically. Okay, Babylon, way over there to the east, south of Jerusalem, across the Jordan River, we have Temen, which is in um, Midian and Edom. Okay, that's where their relatives lived. Okay, their distant relatives, Temen. God moving across, going west, down to Mount Paran, which, and we, as we see in places like Deuteronomy 33, is probably another name for Mount Sinai. And so it's, this is really describing how God roused himself up, how he went south, how he delivered them from their captivity to Egypt, how he set them free from their bondage in Egypt. His splendor, we see in, in, as uh, this continues, his splendor fills the earth, praise fills the earth from heaven to earth, all points in between are filled with the praise of God. And there's something here that is meant to echo uh, chapter 2, verse 14, with that parallel use of covering and filling. But we see splendor. Another word would be glory of this unstoppable glory that God possesses. We see that His normally veiled power flashes forth like rays from His hands. I can't help but think of Thor Ragnarok. When Thor finally realizes that the power is not in the hammer, the fact is that he is the God, lowercase g, of thunder. And the lightning starts to come from his hands, and he's able to control the lightning and uh, throw it. And that's sort of a something even greater with God. That that there is it's almost like sunlight coming from the palm of his hands, and that he can obscure by closing his hands, but open to reveal. In other words, he's powerful in a way that we can't understand. This light, these rays. I mean. The intended implication here is it's like looking at the sun. You can't do it. You, have, you can only look indirectly at the sun. And there were people, remember, we had the, the great eclipse a little while ago, and um, it was very tempting to try and look at the eclipse directly, and even the eclipse you can't see directly without damaging your eyes. That's how powerful it is, and God is much more powerful than that. We see that Moses, having been in the presence of God, as it says in 34, his face glowed, the skin of his face shone, and the people were afraid to come near him. As a result, how much more afraid were they to come close to God? 
And they should be afraid because it says again here, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his, ha- at his heels. The front and rear God of go- uh, guard of God were plague and pestilence. God knows how to do destruction when it comes in terms of justice and wrath. Something of a reminder, this is invoking the ten plagues and curses of the well, the ten plagues that came upon Egypt, but also we find them in the curses of the law for disobedience in Deuteronomy 28. We see that the wicked are consumed by God's wrath. This is portrayed by Habakkuk as a cosmic sort of event because we see that mountains are scattered, hills sink, mountains writhe. I've never seen a mountain writhe. Anybody seen a mountain writhe? But we see this visceral reaction of all of creation when God comes forth in His glory to bring about judgment and deliverance. It's intended to be quite impressive. In other words, Babylon ain't nothing compared to the God who's going to bring judgment upon Babylon. He's the God who overcomes rivers. Like the, He stopped up the River Jordan so that the people of Israel could cross the River Jordan and go into the Promised Land. He's the God who stops up seas as He, as he split the Red Sea so His people could walk through and then closed it back up again to destroy the armies of Pharaoh. That's God. And in Exodus 15, when it relates what happened at the Red Sea, the Sea of Overcoming, we see that God has said in verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. He's a warrior. You get the picture? All of these things that, that Habakkuk is painting are intended to tell us that God has no enemy that can withstand Him. There is no one that can prevent His triumph. There's no one who can stay His hand in judgment. He is a warrior that is undefeated and will always be undefeated. And so, He is a God whose wrath no other being can restrain or constrain. That's the God that Habakkuk believed in. That's the God Habakkuk wants you to believe in. That's the God I want you to believe in. But wait, you might say. That was wrath. What about the mercy? Again, let's kind of go back a little bit. God's not like us in some ways. And in one of those significant ways is that God is not overcome by what we would call emotions that are ascribed to God in the texts. In other words, He is not overcome by anger. He's always working uh, or always acting in, in conformity with His character as a whole. And so even in the midst of God's wrath, his justice, there is going to be mercy for his people. We see it in the text here because the chariot that he drives that produces these storm clouds, you know, to 
that's how they understood part of it. That's, that's part of the symbolism. The chariot he drives is the chariot of salvation. And so while he drives this chariot, uh, leading an army to destroy the Babylonians, he's doing it to bring salvation, to bring mercy to his people who have been under the thumb of the Babylonians. Their judgment, our salvation, these things are working together as uh, all of this unfolds. In other words, while God is a warrior, he's not out looking for fights. He doesn't hang around in bars waiting for someone to provoke a fight and a conflict. Uh, God does not do that. Okay? He is not a warrior who's just begging for action. This is a mission of mercy. This is a mission for rescue. And so Habakkuk continues, you went out for the salvation of your people, first in Egypt, now soon in Babylon. And we look back on Babylon and say, God did it. We look back at other places and say, God did that. And we look forward and say, God will do that. When he returns, the second advent. And here we find some interesting uh, connections that take place. For instance, Isaiah 11, talking about what the Messiah is going to do, the Lord is going to do. With righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Keep that in mind. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Fast forward, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, speaking of Jesus. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. When Jesus returns, he shall, with the breath of his lips, kill the wicked one, as well as the wicked. And that is a mercy towards his people because their enemy will be vanquished. Again, I can't say this enough. He brings judgment for the salvation of his people. He destroys in order to protect that which he loves. He does this, and this, this is an odd phrase. This is part of what's difficult in this um, particular text, which one commentator started off his commentary saying, this is one of the most difficult poems in the Old Testament. And I went, yay. <laughs> okay. For the salvation of your anointed, probably better understood the salvation of your anointed with a capital A, meaning the Messiah, not just any old son of David, not just a, a, a king from the line of David, but the son of David, the Davidic king, most fully, uh, most completely fulfills this. Jesus is going to return to bestow mercy on his people by bringing judgment on his enemies. And we see a frightful picture of Jesus in Revelation 1, which we read earlier. We see Jesus with eyes like fire, Jesus with feet like bronze, Jesus with a face like the shining sun. 
He has the sword of the Spirit sticking out of his mouth, according to the John and the Apostle. He's terrifying. He's a conquering king who is tattooed with faithful and true upon his thighs, as we see later on in the book of Revelation. And so we see that not only is Jesus a warrior, but Jesus is a victorious warrior who fights for his people out of love, not money. He's not a mercenary. I'm not sure what was going on this week, but the Die Hard movies were on TV a lot. I got sucked in. <laughs> What's interesting about the Die Hard movies is that the first two, yeah, he's taken on the terrorists and the thieves, he's taken on the villains, but the reason that he's really taking on the villains is his wife. In the first case, he's got to protect her from the people who have taken over. Ah, uh, yeah, that tower. Thank you. <laughs> I'm watching too many movies lately. I'm sorry. Okay. His wife is in danger. She could be killed. And so John McClain goes into action in order to save his wife. Second movie, similar sort of thing. She's not directly in danger, but she's in a plane that's circling above the airport, which can't land because the terrorists have taken over the airport. And John McClain, who was waiting for his wife, is now placed in action again. He's not looking for a fight, but it came to him, and he, he engaged in it for the one he loves. And then in the third movie, they broke the script. <laughs> no family whatsoever. But the third movie, the fourth movie rather, which is one of the ones I saw, his daughter has been kidnapped by the villain and is threatened with death. And so when the carnage is over, as they uh, spent lots of money on special effects, destroying all kinds of things uh, with, with F-35 uh, planes and helicopters, and it was crazy. But he's got multiple bullet wounds, and his daughter says as he sits in the ambulance, I knew you would come for me. She knew her father, and she knew that nothing would stand in his way. And that is what we are called to believe about Jesus. That there is nothing that will stand in his way, that he is the most fearsome warrior that there ever was, but he fights for love. I know people who joke, I'm not a lover, I'm a fighter, or I'm not a fighter, I'm a lover. Jesus is both. He's a lover and a fighter. And when he does fight, it's because he's a lover. He comes for his people to rescue them. He fights only for what he loves, which is his people. That is the Jesus that we must believe in. Because, because that is the Jesus presented in the Scriptures. Because that is the Jesus who can rescue his people when they're in big trouble. The one who comes for his people. And so Jesus' wrath is a mercy for the salvation of his people. So, let's wrap this up. In difficult times, 
Your faith is built as you remember who Jesus is. If you, when you remember what He has done in history and what He promises to do in the future. And so, sing and pray in your fear so that you will be filled with awe at this Jesus. Know that God is a lover because He sent the Son to love and die as an atoning sacrifice for His people. But know as well that God is a fighter because He sends the Son to defeat the dragon, to defeat the beasts, and defeat all of His enemies because He loves His family and faith. That's a God you need when real life hits the fan. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the fact that Your Son is greater than we could ever ask or imagine. That He's able to hold all of this together, so to speak, to be the, both of these things, and it doesn't contradict at all, in, even though our minds have a hard time holding it together. We thank You that Jesus is greater than we could imagine that His grace is greater than we can imagine. Help us to grow in our faith by singing about that Jesus, by reading about that Jesus in Your Word, by, by knowing that what You say is true because You do not lie. so that our hearts can grow larger because we trust you more and we're able to love other people more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.